Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Verses 8 and 9 is where we're going to be this morning. Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9. If you're around me for any period of time, you know that I'm always on a diet, it seems like. It seems like no matter what good thing is ever put in front of me, I'm always reminded, you can't eat that. The problem is I really like food. And I like good food. I like really good food. I like donuts. I love donuts. If that's, hey, if that's what it takes to get an amen, I'm, I'm good with it. I like brisket. I like barbecue. I like good things. And I'm, I'm constantly reminded, the older I get, I realize some of you are going to laugh when I say that. I'm 38 years old, but I'm reminded every day that I'm not getting any younger. That every day that passes, there's one less thing that I can eat. You learn pretty quickly, the older you get, the things that you take in have a much longer impact than they used to have. The donuts that you eat tend to slow you down after a while. You feel it. I used to be able to eat a Big Mac and finish the day like a hummingbird. And now I feel like I got shot in the rear end with a tranquilizer dart. <laughs> Just has an effect on you. You can't endure like you once did. What goes in works its way out eventually doesn't it? In our passage this morning, Paul is giving one final exhortation to the Philippians. One command to them. Wrapping all the things up. And he's helping them to consider what goes in. Because what goes in has a way of working its way out. Let's look at Philippians 4, 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have sung your word, we have prayed your word, we have read your word aloud. As I prepare to preach your word, I pray you would speak through me to all of us listening. Open our ears to be attentive, open our eyes to pay attention, open our hearts that we may listen to what you're saying and believe it and obey it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Just to give you an idea of where we're going for the next foreseeable future. And I, I say that knowing that we just came out of a pandemic not that long ago, right? And everybody, a lot of preachers preached 2020 vision sermons right before the pandemic, not foreseeing what was going to happen the next few months. So just with that in mind, tentatively and Lord willing, we're in the second to last week of our study through the book of Philippians. 
So next week we'll end with Philippians 10, uh, 4, 10 to 23, and then we'll begin a summer in the Psalms, where we'll go from Psalm 31 to Psalm 40. And that'll wrap up on August 7th. My plan is, Lord willing, on August 14th, to begin a study through 1 Samuel. So that probably won't take us the three and a half or four years that it took us to get through Matthew, since there's bigger chunks in 1 Samuel. But uh, needless to say, we'll be there for a little while. So that is the tentative plan from here on out. But as we turn our attention to the book of Philippians, we'll do well to remember all of the things that Paul has been encouraging the Philippians to throughout this entire book. And I, I, I want our, our trek through this book to, to help to remind us to live a Christ-centered life. That's why the sermon series has been titled through the book of Philippians, A Christ-Centered Life, because I want you to see that that's exactly what Paul is encouraging the Philippians to. He's drawing their attention to Christ-centered living and laying out exactly what the thought process behind Christ-centered living actually looks like. And, and just so we can have an abundance of clarity, let's remind ourselves where we've been. So as we go through this little review here, I want you to just turn back to Philippians 1 and just track with me as I call out these verses. You can put your eyes on the text with me as we go through the book just briefly. Remember back in chapter 1 and verse 6, you see there in verse 6, he told us that centering Christ in our lives is a work that God begins in his people and he brings it to completion when Christ returns. So he, he, he has started the process in you, and he's going to bring it to completion. So the process of sanctification in our life is a long, slow road, all right? It's one where the, the trend is always upward. Like a good stock, it may look on any given day as if it's going downward, your journey in believing in Christ, but on the whole, if you zoom back far enough across the course of our entire life, it's trending upwards, and God is the one bringing it to completion along the way. So that means that we are all a work in progress. We are a work a work that God is doing in us, through us, to us, sometimes in spite of us. But it's also a progress in that He is taking us from point A to point B. But then if you look just a couple of verses later in verse 8, He says that He has the affection of Christ Jesus for them, and His prayer for them is that they are filled with the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. So he wants their lives to exude the righteousness that comes through knowing Jesus Christ. And he says that this fruit is, is, that's produced in them is an increase of their knowledge of God, of their discernment, and their love for one another. So the righteousness of Christ that grows in them, as they center their lives on Christ, it should work its way out, and it should be seen in the life of the church in their increasing in the knowledge of God, in their discernment, meaning they're able to apply the knowledge of God to situations, and they're growing in love for one another. This is how, he says, they are to ready themselves for the day of Christ by abounding in the same love and, and knowledge and discernment. Then you see in verses 12 to 18 of chapter 1, where he starts talking about the advance of the gospel that's currently going on in the world that he lives in. Mind you, Paul is in prison as he's writing this letter. He's note, noted that the gospel is advancing, and then he says this in verse 17. 
The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. But look at what he says in 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So we saw that for Paul, Christ-centered thinking, Christ-centered living, is having his own reputation take a back seat to the advance of the gospel in the broader world around him. That's what it's caused for him. To have Christ at the center of his life means that my own reputation and ego takes a back seat to the advance of the gospel because some people are spreading the gospel at the expense of my own name. But then right after that, we get in verse 21, the most famous verse probably in all of the book of Philippians. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He says, for to me to live is Christ. And he goes on to say what he means by that, because it's kind of a weird phrase. It's sort of a weird wording that we have there in chapter 1. But he, he, he goes on to explain it. He says that, that for, for me to live is Christ, meaning that I get to go on doing fruitful labor. That, that not only has Paul's reputation taken a back seat to the advance of the gospel, but his own identity has taken a back seat. My life is Jesus here on earth. It's solely to be lived at His discretion. My whole identity takes a back seat to Him. I'm here to do His bidding. And whatever Christ sees fit, that's where I'm going to be. And that's going to be fruitful labor. And then at the end of chapter 1, he says in verse 27 that he wants them to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. He, and he defines that by saying that it's unwavering doctrine in the church. It's united in proclamation, meaning they're striving side by side, not face to face, not in confrontation, but striving side to side for the advance of the gospel. And they're unafraid of the opposition that they might face. So he wants them to center Christ in their own lives. And what that means is living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. A life worthy of the gospel of Christ, put simply, is a life together as a body that promotes the gospel above all else. But in order to do that, they're going to have to have the kind of humility that emulates Christ's own humility on the cross. So when you go to chapter 2, he gets to verse 3, and he says that's going to include counting others more significant than themselves. They're going to have to mirror Christ's humility as He goes to the cross and submits all things to the Father, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. They're going to have to model that kind of humility for other people. That they're going to have to live their lives in such a humble way as they would put others' needs ahead of their own. In verse 12, he says that's going to include paying careful attention to their obedience to God. In verse 14, doing all things without grumbling or disputing. Then in verses 19 to 30, he, he gives them people to emulate. Not only are they to emulate Christ in His humility, but they're to emulate Timothy and Epaphroditus in their own ministry to them. And then in chapter 3, they're to emulate those who put no confidence in the flesh like Paul himself and not to emulate those who see their righteousness as anything other than Christ Himself. All the while, in verse 13, He encourages them to press on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
And in verse 17, keeping their eyes on people that walk according to the example that we have in them. And as we saw last week, Christ-centered living sees itself work out in the life of the church as the church becomes a group of peacemakers who operate as though the Lord could return at any moment. This is Christ-centered living. This is what it looks like to have a Christ-centered life. But now as Paul begins to close out his epistle to the Philippians, he gives really one final, last command of his letter. And as usual, he saves the best for last. I think it suffices to say, all of our toes should be stepped on sufficiently by the end of this sermon. Myself included. In these two verses, we find two commands that are related to one another. The first command is fill your mind with the things of God. Fill your mind with the things of God. The first of of Paul's commands is to very simply think. That's the command that he gives them. Think. But of course, it's not just filling their minds with anything. He says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The command is to think. To think on these things. There's a couple of important things that I think form the foundation or the basis of this command. And the first is this. God has filled His world with true, honorable, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and praiseworthy things. God has filled the world that you live in with all of those things. We can see this as early as the first pages of Genesis. Genesis 1.10, God called the dry land earth, and the waters that, he, that were gathered together He called seas, and God saw that it was good. 1.12, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their, their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which there is their seed, each according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Or 125, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Or 131, and God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning on the sixth day. But you might be thinking, well, sure. But then sin and evil came into the world and corrupted everything, right? But remember, James tells us in James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So this is something fundamental to our lives as Christians in the here and now. God has filled His world with good things and He routinely gives good things to you. The challenge from Paul to you and to the Philippians is to think about these things. The good things that He's filled His world with and that He's given to you. It's to think about things, all things around you in a godly way. And this will come to you the moment you stop 
and just consider the kind of world that He has created you to enjoy. As an example, He made you to get hungry so that your belly could be filled with food. That wasn't a result of the fall Adam and Eve ate, obviously. He made you to get hungry, but He made food taste good. Right? Amen? Somebody. Come on. He made brisket, which is the best of all meats. Don't you know? I don't know if I've told you all that, but I'm from Texas. Brisket. I would recommend it to you. Stay away from the pork. You know, whatever. He could have made food to just satiate your hunger, but taste like dirt. It was just something you had to endure. Or, if you've had COVID, have no taste whatsoever. Right? All of a sudden you realize how great taste is. Maybe it would be just something you have to power through. He made mountain views that you can go up and see. But He could have given us lungs that couldn't endure altitude so that we couldn't breathe as we walked up higher. So these mountain views would never be able to be observed. He made billions of galaxies that fill the night sky, but He could have given you the eyesight of a rhinoceros so that you could never see it. He's given us grass and trees and lakes and oceans and rivers, but He could have made them all monochrome so that what you're looking at is just lakes and rivers and oceans and streams and mountains and valleys and peaks all in various shades of gray. Now these are some of the common graces that He's given to the world generally. Everybody can observe these things. But there's also blessings that He's given to particular people in particular places. He's given you, as an example, freedoms. And He's put you in a country that as of right this moment still protects those freedoms. He's filled your pantries with food and your taps with water. Clean water. Potable water. But then there are even more blessings that He's given to you particularly who are in the body of Christ, to you His children. He's forgiven you of sin. He sent His own Son to die in your place. He's promised you eternal life, where the curse of sin will forever be removed. He's given you of His Spirit, that from now until then, He will convict you of sin, He will lead you in repentance, and give you the endurance to cross the finish line. So He's given common graces to almost everyone. To everyone. He's given particular graces to some in different places. He's given special graces to His children. So when Paul exhorts the Philippians to think about what is honorable, what is just, what is pure, what is lovely, what is commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise, he's first pushing their minds to the One who is honorable and just and pure and lovely. To get them to think about the things that God has given them. So the steak and baked potato, or the brisket, no longer is just good in and of itself. Thank you, Lord, it tastes good. But it causes the Christian for his heart to bubble up in a kind of praise to the God who has uniquely suited him to live on this earth and has given him the gift of taste. So every meal is a cause for praise and celebration. Every day you get up and take air into your lungs and breathe it out is a day of celebration and praise. For you to think about the God who has created you and given you the ability to enjoy life. 
The night sky is not just neat to observe through the telescope. As we think about these things, it makes our heart praise the One who gave us eyes to see and minds to craft a telescope that we might view it even better. So first, God has filled His world with true, honorable, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and praiseworthy things, and we should see the world this way. We should learn to think this way. We should think about all of our meals this way. We should think about all of our life this way. But second, Paul is commanding us to think God's own thoughts after Him. In other words, what he's saying is, Christian, your thought life matters. Everything you think actually matters. God knows every thought you think. Our minds are to be absolutely captured by holiness. Every single thought. Brings a little bit of fear, doesn't it? As we think about all of the many thoughts that cross our mind in a given day, don't we give a little bit of pause to that and go, oh, I realize how sinful I really am. Consider Hebrews 4.13, And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Well, that'll strike a little fear in your heart. About Psalm 139, where David prays, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Your thought life matters. If you don't think so, think about Matthew 5, 21 and 22. You heard that it was said that to those of old you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable of judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother is liable for judgment. That's a thought that starts in the heart or in the mind. Or just a few verses later, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. These are the thoughts of the heart for which God cares deeply and matter in our quest for holiness. Every thought counts. It all matters. But understand what Paul is saying here and how it contrasts with so many of the religions of the world. Buddhists and Hindu spend their time in meditation attempting to rid themselves of thought. The goal of yoga and various other things is to empty yourself of all thought. Getting rid of, of everything. Finding the, the self completely unhindered by self. That's not what Paul says. That's not what Christians believe. Paul says the exact opposite. Fill your mind. Don't empty it. Fill it. My problem is it's empty to begin with. I need to fill it. Don't get rid of everything. Don't think of absolute nothingness, which even the Buddhist would say is next to impossible. Paul says, fill it. Fill your mind. Christians don't meditate to get to a state of emptiness or to clear our minds. That's not what a Christian means when he says meditate. We meditate on the Word of God. We're filling our mind, not emptying it. It's the exact opposite. 
We meditate on the wonderful things that He's filled our world with and that God uniquely as Creator and Sustainer has given to us as our Provider. We meditate on His goodness to us, both generally and particularly. We think about God and we think about His thoughts about things. God has given us ample things to think about. All from Him who is truly honorable, just, pure, and lovely. Our thoughts about things are ultimately to be thoughts about Him. So, when Paul is defining the Christ-centered life, he's drilling down to the very center of your mind. Your thoughts are to be captured by Christ and driven towards holiness. But the second thing he says is to then put into practice godly things. Don't just think godly things. Put into practice godly things. Look at verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul's been urging, as we saw throughout this letter, to look to others to emulate, to look to Jesus, to look to Timothy, to look to Epaphroditus. And then he says, even me, in verse 17 of chapter 3, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So now he's exhorting them to imitate him in a particular way. Specifically, as it comes to the way he has conducted himself when he was with them. The reason is because of what he's just commanded them to do. To think about things that are pure and lovely and commendable and excellent. What Paul is essentially wanting them to emulate is his thought life. But have you ever tried to emulate someone else's thoughts? How can you do that? That's impossible. You can't know someone else's thought life. But what Paul is saying is that his actions give a window into his thought life. There's a reason that we're to think godly things. Because the foundation of godly action is godly thinking. Your mind has to be filled with the things of God before your actions can be filled with the things of God. It's an input-output situation. Garbage in, donuts in, donuts out. Sluggishness on the other side. So Philippians, as you learned from me, as you received from me, as you heard me speak, as you watched every movement I made, he's asking, were the actions that I demonstrated in front of you, were those the, the kinds of actions of a man who spent his life thinking about things that are not valuable? Or are they ultimately demonstrating Actions that are, that are evidence that my mind was filled with the things of God. And if that's the case, then imitate me in that thought, in those thoughts. Where there is stunted growth in the life of a Christian, there is stunted thought life first. Promise. In other words, a man doesn't just decide to get up one day and walk out on his family. You can bet if you get to his internet browser and look at the history, you can see copious other thoughts that were there first. Before it ever comes to adultery. A person doesn't get up one day and just decide to murder someone. As we saw in Buffalo just in the last week. 
Dig into the life and you will find copious amounts of thoughts that were there first. That were never discouraged, never confronted, never abandoned. Garbage in, garbage out. Where there is a stunted growth in the life of a Christian, there is a stunted thought life first. What's coming out of our lives is what we filled in our minds first. We struggle in 21st century American Christianity to follow complex arguments. You notice that? It's sometimes difficult to hold our attention to things. We have a hard time holding our attention to the Scriptures for any period of time. We struggle to hold in our mind the story of Scripture or the structure of individual books or, or, or much less be able to teach them to others and discuss it with any depth. But it should come as no surprise when our time and our money is spent on 15 different streaming platforms that we've got access to. They give us endless streams of content. See, we have, we have no problem holding our attention to meaningless social media feeds which gives us inane conversations like what's the latest update between Kim and Kanye. Seems to be fine holding our attention. We can watch videos and read articles all day long about stuff like that. But it's difficult and intimidating for us to walk through the Bible with a young Christian and disciple him. But most of us could wax eloquently about what happened with Jimbo Fisher and Nick Saban. Nearly everybody knows about that. Could it be, maybe just maybe, that our stunted lives as Christians has something to do with what we choose to fill our mind with. I find this verse in Isaiah 55, verse 7, particularly odd. It stands out like a sore thumb. Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Listen to that again. I want to read it again. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thought. It's a Hebrew line of poetry, so it means it's two lines like this, and they, they mirror each other. They're, they're restating the same thing a different way. Isaiah says first, let the wicked man, so the wicked man, forsake his way. The unrighteous man, which is the wicked man, his thoughts which is parallel to his way. I think it's interesting that the wicked man is compelled to forsake his thoughts. Shouldn't he say, let the wicked man forsake his wickedness? Move away from his wickedness? Well, it is saying that, but he's saying, first, he's wicked in thought, and it's working its way out to his life. If, however, the mind is continually feasting on holiness that too will work its way out in his actions. Listen, we think wicked things because our hearts are wicked. They're enthused by wickedness. Wickedness brings joy. Fun. 
We have corrupted minds that look at sin and we're intrigued by it, entranced by it, gravitate to it. We think that there is life. That's where the real fun is. That's where enjoyment is. I have to give up joy in order to follow Christ, which is completely antithetical to Christianity. What God is saying is that the only joy is here in Christ. That isn't joy. Any more than cotton candy is fulfillment or sustenance. Our minds have been corrupted by the fall. And our hearts have been set on wickedness to the point where we're intrigued by it. We come to love it and our appetite grows for it. But this command from Paul to practice such things comes with a promise. You see the promise that's there? It comes with a promise. And I think it's one we really need to consider. He says, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Remember last week, he challenged them to pray, and he said, the peace of God will guard their hearts. And now he's telling them to think and act, and the God who is the very definition of peace will be with them along the way. There is a temptation that we all feel because our hearts are bent on wickedness, and we might as well just own it. The temptation that we all feel is continually thinking that the life Paul is describing for us is boring. We're having to keep our minds always on the things of God. That's boring. How can I ever be intrigued by that? And it's evidence in our behavior. There's tons of people that come to church Sunday after Sunday, and they're bored to tears from beginning to end. Sunday is another day off for them. It's called the Lord's Day, but we've translated it into the Lord's Hour. And the very thought of a 45-minute sermon, gosh, that's going to make this an hour and a half. My word, what is this? The Lord's hour and a half? That's not in Scripture. It's just another day off. So the very notion that Paul would push against our Instagram feeds and our Netflix accounts and would tell us instead to just think about godly stuff gives us that same kind of twinge that sounds really boring. But in this same entertaining world that we've created for ourselves, where anxiety and depression and suicide is always on the rise, the promise that is brought on the backside of this is that the God of peace will be with you. That doesn't sound boring at all. That sounds delightful. I don't know how many of you are like me and you get overwhelmed by just the amount of information that comes at you all the time. You can't turn on the TV without growing depressed. You can't look on the internet without more bad news upon bad news because bad news drives clicks. And clicks drive revenue. So they have no incentive to tell you the good news. They have no incentive to tell you good things. They have every incentive to drive your rage and your hatred and your fear. 
And it keeps coming at you time after time after time. And here is a promise in Scripture that as you fill your mind instead with the things of God, the God of peace will be with you. Peace instead of anxiety. Peace instead of turmoil. Now perhaps for the Philippians, they're seeing Paul in prison and they're thinking, hey, they're coming for me. They're going to put me in prison one day. As I'm watching Paul, who's writing this letter, be in prison. And there is great comfort knowing that as I fill my mind with the things of God, even when that kind of persecution comes, I know that I won't go through it alone. But for, for us, perhaps we have long since forsaken our thought life. We filled our minds with garbage, with nothing but trash. And now the garbage is starting to come out in our lives in the form of anxiety and depression. And we're looking at all these, this trash and we don't know what to do with it. Look, I, I don't understand why there's so much trash in my life. But yet if you do just a careful survey of your history and you find all the garbage that you put in, well, there it is. Why am I slow and out of shape? It's because you eat donuts and you don't run. It's simple. Garbage in, garbage out. But many of us are on a quest for peace, aren't we? Peace from strife in our families. Peace from anxiety. Peace from social pressures. Peace from the stress of life. Paul tells us, if you're on a quest for peace, fill your minds with the things of God. Fill your minds to such an extent that it begins to work its way out of your life. To all the things that you're putting in your mind start to become your actions. Start to feed your soul so much that your, your soul really takes over the way you act and the way you think and the way you respond to people and the way you think about the world around you. That all of a sudden your meal no longer is just a meal for which you're just mindlessly praying, thank you Lord for providing. But you're overjoyed by the fact that He's given you such a good gift. He's just said the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And now He's telling you, here, here's how the peace of God will be with you. But maybe it's true that you've been looking for peace for some time and you've not been able to find it. Well, listen to what Isaiah says to finish the thought. He says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. See, the reality is that we're all in a situation where our hearts are bent towards wickedness. But let me tell you something that's very true. That the gospel is not just Christ died for your sins. It is that. But it's not only that. It's also that He left you with a companion in the Holy Spirit to take up residence inside you. So that means that if you're in Christ, your heart can actually be intrigued by the things of God. Can be enthralled by the things of God. You can become a pleasure seeker for Christ you don't have to be enthusiastic about the things of the world. You can actually be enthralled by the things of God because He has given to you a gift. So if you're on the quest for peace, if you're on the quest for joy, you can find it in Christ. But not only that, 
Your heart can be so intrigued by the things of God. You can open your Bible and be so enthusiastic about the things that you read there that you can barely take your eyes away from the page. You can sit and listen as people read Scripture to you. You can cry as songs are sung that are doctrinally rich. You can enjoy the things of God. You can love them far more than you have any passion for the things of this world. That is only available to you in Christ. So if you're seeking peace, if you're seeking lasting peace, if you're seeking joy, it can only be found in Christ and Christ alone. Take your sin to Him. Repent of your sin. Confess them to Him. And trust in the forgiveness because as Isaiah says, He will abundantly pardon. See, He doesn't just say He will pardon. He says He will abundantly pardon. Why do you think that word's in there? It's curious, isn't it? Why does He say He will abundantly pardon? Maybe it's because there's a lot of people who see all the sin in their life and they go, okay, it says you will pardon. But he doesn't know what I've done. He didn't leave it there. He said he will abundantly pardon. That means your sin is abundant? So is the pardon you can receive in Christ. It's only there. It's only there. All the things that bring you joy, do you find that they dissipate very quickly? And you look at yourself in the mirror and you realize how fast that joy went away almost as quickly as it came. That's not true for the Christian. Christian, if, if you're having trouble finding joy in Christ, Push harder into Scripture, not further away. Push harder into the body of Christ. Surround yourself by people who will continue to encourage you, who give you something to emulate, as Paul is encouraging the Philippians to emulate him. Find people around you who will encourage you in that endeavor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Give us the strength to make it. Give us endurance to run the race well, to finish the course that you've set for us. Fix our eyes on Christ. I am positive that there are people in this room who are listening to what I just said and think that it's absolute rubbish. And they will always think that until you open their eyes, so we pray that you would right now. Tear down any walls that are built up that resist the gospel. Break through them. They may see and savor Christ who saves and who brings everlasting joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.